0: Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This
1: is episode 130. It is a powerful thing when you can become content and grateful with who you are because it also opens up your eyes to who other people are.
0: Rev. Dr. Yvette Flunder is a San Francisco native and has served her call through prophetic action and ministry for justice for over 30 years. Her calling to blend proclamation, worship, service, and advocacy on behalf of those most marginalized in church and in society led to the founding of the City of Refuge United Church of Christ in 1991. In 2003, Reverend Dr. Flunder was consecrated presiding bishop of the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries, a multi-denominational coalition of over 100 primarily African-American Christian leaders and laity. Reverend Dr. Flunder is on the board of Star King School for the Ministry and has taught at many theological schools. She's a graduate of the Certificate of Ministry and Master of Arts programs at Pacific School of Religion and received her Doctor of Ministry from San Francisco Theological Seminary. She's also an award-winning gospel music artist and author of Where the Edge Gathers. She's been profiled in several TV shows such as Dustin Lance Black's miniseries When We Rise, the 2018 film Come Sunday, which is available on Netflix, and most recently PBS's The Black Church. This episode originally aired back in 2019, and I am really excited to share it again because it may be my favorite episode of all time of Queerology. <laughs> I also wanted to re-air it because Dr. Flunder is a keynote speaker at the 2022 Q Christian Fellowship Conference, which you're going to hear more about in the little mid-roll ad, and I-, I figured this would be a good reintroduction to her and her work. If you hear this and and think... I want to hear more from Reverend Dr. Flunder. You should consider joining us at the conference. I'm going to be a keynote speaker there as well. Of course, Reverend Dr. Flunder. There are several other amazing keynote speakers, such as Reverend Mihi Kim Court, who's also been on Queerology, Caitlin Curtis, Paula Stone Williams. It's going to be a blast. And you can get 10% off your registration by using the discount code Queerology over at QCFConf.org. I have no announcements today, so let's just go ahead and dive in. Bishop Flunder, welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Matthias. I appreciate the invitation.
0: Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on today.
1: So, so this is a
0: question I start every episode with. How do you identify, and how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity?
1: Well, I'm a woman of African-American descent, The greater part of me. <laughs> I'm also, by the way, a part a Cherokee and Irish it's an interesting mix going on inside of me at the same time. I also identify as a person of faith. I was raised and nurtured in the African-American Pentecostal tradition, Southern-influenced Pentecostal tradition, but born in San Francisco, California. I am a same-gender loving woman, specifically I've been in partnership and love relationship with my now spouse. Shirley Miller for 35 years, which is very exciting to me. I am also a justice warrior in terms of how I, how I consider myself and how I show up in the world and concerned about multiple justice issues that have intersections in very interesting ways. And my faith is informed because I consider myself a disciple of Jesus Christ and particularly a disciple of the heretical part of Jesus <laughs> that has everything to do with speaking truth to power, both to religion and empire. And that's more or less uh, how I view myself.
0: The heretical part of Jesus. I love that. Can you talk more about that, especially kind of how that relates to justice
1: work? Well, I consider the ministry of Jesus Christ, the earthly ministry of Jesus, at uh, Palestinian Jew, essentially, who spoke into the combination, the insidious combination of empire and religion that eventually captured him and murdered him, martyred him in many ways. And I believe that he was heretical because, uh, and by the way, his, his heretical side frustrated the leaders of his time because it drew the people away from their uh, religion and the abuses of those religions that siphoned off their money, siphoned off their power, controlled them in various ways, and the ways in which that faith path also was in league with empire. And those two powers together, uh, Jesus spoke against the ways in which they were abusive to people. And I'm sure... Eventually, that was the reason that he was killed. But that kind of heretical faith path that pushes back against abusive religion and empire simultaneously is very much uh, who Gandhi was, who Martin King was, and just about in so many ways, uh, Nelson Mandela. I could go on and on, but that is why I feel close to the ministry. Of Jesus Christ and consider myself a disciple of a heretic. Just one aside: every real prophet begins as a heretic, and I am grateful to be numbered among them.
0: I mean, when, when we were talking kind of before we started recording, I mean, you were talking about the need to have a theology that leads towards justice, a, a theology of justice, and I mean, it makes me think of um, Are you familiar with like Roderick Greer's work? Yes. Uh, Roderick, yeah. I mean, he talks about how, how theology, I, I don't think this is original to him, but theology cannot be done in ivory towers, but it must work on the ground. And that's where my mind's going, like this need for a different kind of theology than, than what's present in, in a lot of churches here in the U.S. today, for sure.
1: I agree wholeheartedly. The thing about, and I say this as a practitioner of faith, but you know, I, I'm also able to interrogate and, and interpret what it is that is religion in our time. And the great tendency to silo, to become fundamentalists, even when we say we're not, <laughs> has uh, a system, several systems of belief, belief systems, all essentially in the same field, but all in separate silos. And those silos judge each other and critique each other and spend an enormous amount of time being faithful to what is their belief system, which fundamentally also suggests that there's something problematic about the belief system in the silo that's next door. (laughs) And it leaves an enormous amount of justice work undone because it takes a lot of energy to maintain a fundamentalist silo. When I add that to the fact that a lot of what influences those realities is our, particularly as Christians, but sometimes as Muslims and some of the other faiths that I interact with, has to do with our eschatology, our eschatological view, or our end-of-life view, or or our believing that God, through Jesus, or some other methodology, is going to come back and blow the whole earth up, you know, <laughs> tends to, to lend us to move toward not caring so much about the here and now with a greater focus on the afterlife. So we have a bunch of faith paths that are not really focused on the work that we are called to do. But Jesus said, when you pray, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's the on earth part that sometimes gets lost in the desire to prepare people for an afterlife. And the earth literally, and the earth as it relates to humankind, gets neglected in that kind of fundamentalist thinking or in that kind of religiosity. So that's a very real close reality for me. And I had a shift in my life that moved me to understand that my responsibility is to bring the realm of God, the kingdom of God into the earth. That was my responsibility not to spend all my time trying to get people ready for the by and by. It's about the here and now.
0: (laughs) I'm thinking about like, just, just knowing parts of your story, just little bits of it, of, of, especially thinking back to like the AIDS crisis in the late eighties, early nineties and, and kind of your work being just on the ground caretaking pastoring. I mean, it, it seems like as we kind of talk about these two different kinds of theological <laughs> views of, of eschatology of, of of a future to come versus on the ground right now, like this is work that, y- that you've been involved in for longer than a lot of people who are listening to this, this podcast longer than I've been alive. It's born out of experience. Could you tell us some stories about kind of wherever that these ideas lead you. I would love to hear some stories from.
1: Well, I've been engaged in uh, the HIV AIDS epidemic pandemic since the early 80s. And during that time period, as I call uh, the dying years, it wasn't unusual in San Francisco to have, you know, two or three funerals a week. And I truly was, you know, suffering emotionally from, what I would call multiple loss syndrome, much much like what happens during time of, of uh, active war in countries where people were, were dying all around you. And then went along with that was this constant theological rhetoric about God being angry with the LGBT community, and that this was God's retribution for people being gay. And it was very painful because I knew people in the LGBT community that were both in and out of church, people who were involved in the arts and in music, and I could go on and on. And people who were preachers and pastors who were living with uh, HIV and dying with HIV. And I remember falling into what might best be described, uh, multiple loss syndrome, depression. And one day (laughs) I turned on what I call wrist cutting music some old uh, Donny Hathaway's music, and poured myself a, a rather significant glass of bourbon, and turned the lights off, and got ready to stage a complete pity party, because it was just a dark time. And in the midst of that, I was illumined by uh, the call to get actively engaged and involved in the epidemic, and I began to understand that I was accomplishing nothing just uh, being broken, what I needed to do was push back and start working to both give comfort to the people who were infected, but also to start working toward improving our response to the epidemic comprehensively. And I must say, I did turn Donny Hathaway off and I did turn the lights back on. I did finish my bourbon, too. That's the other part of it. <laughs> and and so I got up from there and started working with some folks. To uh, begin, uh, we had a bit of an underground clinic that we were using what was called then Compound Q, which was the predecessor to AZT. And it wasn't approved altogether yet, but we were able to help some people early on. Eventually, uh, and some of those people are still alive, by the way. And then we went from one thing to another. I was a part of ACT UP, you know, to help us get access to drugs, part of the uh, Ryan White money, part of the group of people who push for the minority AIDS initiatives. And I've been a lot, spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C. with the, our elected officials and as an advisor to the Congressional Black Caucus. Uh, brain, health brain trust. I could go on and on and on. It's been almost 30 years of work. But what I really realized is I had to get beyond this thing of thinking that this was the result of an angry God. And as I have said many times, HIV is an equal opportunity virus and it has affected and infected women, uh, children, men, people straight and gay, people black, white, and every other hue. Uh, in the world. And if God was angry only at one community, it would seem that this angry God would direct that anger to that one community and not just kill people scattershot. HIV, the virus itself, did not kill all of the people who died from the complications. Denial, an absence of an early response, and religious misinformation has done more to kill people with HIV across the world than the virus itself could possibly have done. And so I have been engaged in this for a long time uh, because it's a perfect storm. If a retrovirus is going to really proliferate, you know, put it in the hands of people who say that it is the will of God that it happened and it becomes extremely complicated to do what needs to be done. But that has been our work and we have made some incredible strides. We don't have a cure. We talk about PrEP, but that is PrEP is not a cure. We don't have a cure. We are still needing to work toward finding a cure to do more than make the virus manageable. We need to have it eradicated, particularly in the countries where we're not even talking about gay as a great concern because that is where The country, those are the places where the huge numbers we are talking about the continent of Africa, talking about more cases in Asia. You know, I could go on and on, but there's a huge need to find a cure. That's sort of where my heart has been around HIV. And I could tell you my personal involvement began with the ministry of touch because so many people, their parents, their families, their church members would not touch them. And I have had the experience. I have watched folks that I have loved when their eyes would fix and dilate. I have picked people up and carried them and put them in my car to take them to the hospital. And I had to lift them myself because the ambulances wouldn't come because they were afraid of touching people. And once you understand how the virus was transmitted, you understood the touch has absolutely nothing to do with passing the virus from one person to another, but so many people, their families, their friends, they wouldn't eat with them, they wouldn't breathe the air in the room with them, and they would not touch them. Touch. That was what was such an important healing force during that time.
0: You're invited to join me at the 2022 Q Christian Fellowship Conference. If you've listened to Queerology for a while, you've heard me talk about this conference. It's an annual gathering where hundreds of LGBTQ plus Christians and allies gather. There's a worship, community, workshops, and keynote speakers. People make lifelong friends at this thing. I've made lifelong friends at this thing. It's always a lot of fun and is super healing. I usually end up in tears at one point or another every year. (laughs) Keynote speakers this year include several Queerology guests that you've heard before. The Reverend Dr. Yvette Flunder, Reverend Mihi kim Court, Caitlin Curtis, Paula Stone-Williams, and yours truly, me, (laughs) Matthias Roberts. For the first time ever, the 2022 conference is going to be offered virtually and in person, so you can connect with LGBTQ Christians and allies from all over the world at home or with us in Albuquerque, New Mexico on January 20th to 23rd. Visit qcfconf.org to learn more and register using the discount code Queerology for 10% off in-person and virtual registration. That's qcfconf.org and the discount code queerology. I can't wait to see you there. You said earlier, like I, I was accomplishing nothing by being broken. That that kind of sense of wanting to hide in a hole and 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 like feel everything. Like that I feel like that's such a natural kind of response. And you're talking about being then moved to action, and, and and I feel like I mean as we're sitting now, kind of today, in, in other variations of religious misinformation, of people turning their t- turning their faces away, people not wanting to touch their queer kids. Like, I mean, it's similar and very different, um, but but it's so easy to want to go turn off the lights <laughs> and just feel discouraged for those of us who are kind of feeling that. Right now, how do we move to action?
1: I would love to share with you sort of my experience, my story with my mother, who was a strong Pentecostal woman who was a true fundamentalist and had a real theology of sin and hell, a strong theology. And when my mother and I had the conversation about my being a same gender loving woman, my mother stopped talking to me. For a period of years, when we did speak, it was always you know cursory, polite, but uh, strained and my mother and I are born on the same day, twenty two years apart, <laughs> and she 's passed away now, but to lose my mom and my relationship with my mom uh, was very painful. It was difficult for me, it was difficult for my mother, but she couldn 't cross that water. <clears throat> It sort of chokes me up a bit still. She couldn't cross that water to fully affirm me as a same-gender loving person. And so what she did was isolate me in hopes that I would come to myself, that I would miss her and the camaraderie of family and come to myself. And I have to say that it was painfully difficult. I would want to say to the parents that are perhaps listening to us is it does not work That's important for me to say, because isolation does not heal. That's important. And it's a wicked punishment between people who genuinely love each other. And my mother, I believe, genuinely loved me. I think she was just trying to figure out how to help me to shift and change. And long story short, my mother, at the distance from her, was complicated and difficult for me. And I prayed about it. And I asked God, what can I do? Short of lying to my mother or pretending like I am uh, shifting and changing. What can I, in terms of my sexuality, what can I do? And it dawned on me one day, one word came up in my mind, shopping. And I knew how much my mother loved to shop. I called my mother on a Monday morning. I said, so mom, how are you doing? So she gave me that terse kind of response. You know, she said, fine. I said, great. Okay, well, I want to come pick you up. She said, what are we going to be doing? And I said, I want to take you shopping. So there was a long pause to which she said, where are we going? I said, all right, to myself. (laughs) 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 So I got in the car and I went and got my mother because I knew where she liked to go. And I took her shopping. And at first the atmosphere was tense. Once we got shopping, you know, things lightened up. We didn't have Theological conversations, conversations about human sexuality or anything. We just talked about the stuff that, that we were shopping for, you know, and a few other lightweight things. I took her home and then we started doing this routinely. I went and picked her up, took her shopping, hung out with her. Eventually, she began to ask me questions. She began to sort of probe into where I was theologically about many things. Then eventually we got down to the conversation about human sexuality and we talked and we talked and we talked and we talked. We talked about sexuality or the absence of sexuality in a positive way in the Bible. We talked about Paul. We talked about the absence of any of the writers giving um, eros to Jesus at all in the Bible. It's like he's very human, but he. Never had any passion for another human being, which was an interesting dynamic. So we kept talking, kept talking, kept talking. Finally, one day she told me, shut up, Yvette. (laughs) I said, okay. (laughs) She said, because if what we are talking about today is true, she said, I've spent my whole life, 60 years of it at least, believing things that I did not have to believe. She said, and you do understand that makes me feel like a fool. And I said, Mama, you have put your finger on probably the most authentic reason why people cannot change. When you have believed something all of your life and you have given your life to believing it, and then someone comes along and perhaps you have an aha moment. It makes it seem like you have lived all of those years essentially uselessly or Somehow or other, it's too late to change, too late to shift. And I said to her, you may have believed some things for 60 years of your life, but you're not dead. You're still alive. And if you want to expand, essentially, theologically, you can do that. You're not in prison. You're not held by anything. So she didn't talk to me again for a few weeks. She shut me down. Not long after that, though. I heard her ringing the doorbell, so I told Shirley, I said, that's mama. Cause she would ring the doorbell, go ding, 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 ding. I said, that's her. Nobody else does that for mama. I went and opened the door and there was mama. Starch Pentecostal, my mother. I'd never even seen her in a pair of pants. There she was standing at my door. She had bought herself a J-Lo pantsuit. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> she, had, she had a, she had a hat on that had sequins all on on it. And tennis shoes with these little dealy bobs, jewelry on the tennis shoes. Now I want you to know, any any Pentecostals that are listening to us right now, understand that this is really not Pentecostal, my mother had on it, right? (laughs) (laughs) So I said, So mama, (laughs) how how you doing? (laughs) She said, Well, I just came by to let you know I'm free. And from that day forward, we had some of the most wonderful, revealing powerful conversations about everything, everything. We opened up, we discussed everything with uh, the full freedom moving beyond this business of, you know, that we cannot unlearn and relearn. We cannot evolve. Everything evolves. You know, we talked, you know, from flip phones to iPhones, everything evolves. Why can't you evolve theologically as well? And it's never too late to evolve. And I'll tell you one more thing. One day she asked me the hard question. She said, Yvette, she said, what do lesbians do? I want you to know that was probably the hardest conversation i would ever had in my life. I said, Mama, I can't talk to you about that. (laughs) She said, oh, yeah. She said, we're going to talk about this. She said, because I can't figure it out. (laughs) <laughs> and I tell you, I tell you and our listeners uh, what a tough job it was. I, I said, mama, this is not, i have to get you some books. She said, no, I don't. I want you to tell me. She said, because all I understand, this is what my mother said to me. All I understand is holes and poles. <laughs> okay. So you can do the rest with your imagination. I said, mama. This is not a, so, but she hung me up like a half day having these conversations, trying to figure out something other than what she had experienced, which is so vital, and something other than what she deemed in her mind was possible in terms of the length and breadth, not only of human sexuality, but also uh, the, the length and breadth and Of non binary concepts that it's not either black or white. You know, women are not from Venus and men from Mars. You know, even in the same gender community, the whole concept of putting people in packages and saying everybody over here is like this and everybody over here is like that. The family of God is such a beautiful garden and so fluid in so many different ways. If we could just get that. We would stop stereotyping people in so many ways. So my mama became the prayer warrior for our conference. We call it that. She came to the fellowship and she met us in the mornings early around eight o'clock on what we call the prayer altar. And we would pray. She would pray with us and she would pray for us. And in so many ways, she was the prayer foundation for what has become the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries. We owe her because Every morning in our conferences, she prayed with us, pastors, leaders, parents, young people. It was so powerful to have her engaged. I can say as a same-gender loving woman, sometimes we forget in the LGBT community that when we come out, we force our parents to have to come out too. Essentially, their friends and colleagues judge them. Oftentimes, and ridicule them because we're same gender loving. And one of the ways in which I think our community really does need to mature is to understand and empathize with what our parents had to experience. They didn't choose to come out, but they have to, to some degree, and have to feel the pain of come outings, if you understand, because their friends and their constituencies ridicule them and suggest that they are deficient because we are same-gender loving. We need to care about that, and we need to also thank them and appreciate them for the degree to which they are able to support us. That's what will demonstrate our maturity as same-gender loving people when we embrace this process for our parents as well. I love my mother while she sleeps in Jesus. I love my mother. Because my mother's journey to be my greatest supporter cost her a whole lot. She paid a significant price in her denomination to be my champion. But every time I do something out here, Matthias, every time I put my hand on something, every time I put my voice on something, some justice issue, I have my mother standing in my back making me feel that if she if she could take on that task and do it beautifully and graciously and powerfully, I have got to keep her aura, her spirit, her presence close by me to help me to continue to do what it is I'm called to do.
0: That's such a, a powerful story. I mean, and it, and it like all started with shopping. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that speaks to just how powerful like the little things can be. I mean... That, that Those little movements towards relationship and how that can change everything. So you were you were telling me also before we kind of started recording, like using like how, how oftentimes like in, in faith communities, we talk about justice issues. When you talk about justice issues, everything kind of comes back to being same gender loving. How that used to be frustrating and now you use it as an, an open door to talk about intersectionality of justice. That made me kind of think of accepting ourselves as same-gender loving, as, as queer, as LGBT, how that can be an open door to looking outward, looking outside of ourselves, of, of kind of having to step outside of the norm. I would love if you could maybe put some more language around like that intersectionality of justice, of, of, of what it looks like to walk through that door.
1: I think that the, the best way for me to describe the evolution for me. I need to begin with saying I am deeply grateful that I am a same-gender loving woman. I didn't choose it. It chose me. But I am very grateful to have been chosen to be a same-gender loving woman because I suspect had I not been, I would be very much still connected to a belief system that in so many ways would not have encouraged me to be engaged in multiple justice issues. So it was being exiled. It was the power of my otherness. And otherness is something that I have come to deeply thank God for. And sometimes I say it to people this way, not everybody can really be gay. (laughs) Mm (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, It's only a certain percentage of the population that, that can <laughs> yep. bear up under this, you know, because <laughs> it can't be a tough road to hoe, you know, at times. And, but I have, I have really reached a point where I'm really grateful to God to be chosen to blur certain lines because blurring those lines around sexuality and gender, in many ways, race and culture and I could go on and on and on, uh, began with my being able to accept the fact that I'm a same-gender loving woman. It was my my, my, my jump-off point. It was my realizing that I really was going to have to look for another path because I am other. Either that or I was going to have to lie. And I could not imagine that God would have called me to ministry and advocacy and then require me to lie. That's an oxymoron to me because God knew it was me when God called me. You know, God didn't make a mistake, you know, skip, you know, come to the wrong house, or <laughs> call the wrong number, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> the God that made me <laughs> knew it was me. And I would say that my otherness has been the greatest blessing in my life in terms of causing me to have justice consciousness. And I begin there by saying that it moved me. To open my eyes to other marginalities, to the ways that women are treated, to the ways that immigrant people are treated, poor people are treated, people with all sorts of emotional and mental health issues are treated, people who have poor access to health care are treated. I could go on and on and on. I began to see the intersections from one justice issue to another from the place of my otherness. That's why I thank God for it. Every day I'm grateful and I have never had a desire to go back to a place of being, uh, how can I say, uh, of fitting perfect, perfectly in the status quo or trying to fit. It's, it's kind of sort of like good hair and bad hair. I'm a person of African descent and I have naturally curly, kinky hair, my own hair and my people for a period of years when I was a kid coming along, used to, to buy preparations that we put on our skin and face to lighten our skin, and then preparations that we used in our hair to straighten our hair. Because we were pulling toward a status quo that said that the more we look like European people, the more we look like white people, the more beautiful we are. That, because the status quo was to try to look as white as you could, because that was Beautiful and powerful, and you would have more opportunities and things of that nature. And it took some years for people of African descent to begin to celebrate being African and celebrate our kinky hair. Well, now we got all kind of kinky hair styles, you know. There's lots of kinkiness going on all over the place, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that wasn't true when I was coming along. The pull was toward what seemed to be the status quo or, the, or the, the powerful people and how those people looked. If we couldn't be them, at least we could try to look more like them. Well, at some point, the same I think is true about celebrating many things about who we are so that we can have an eye toward not being engaged with trying to be someone else, but being grateful For the who we are, what does it do? It helps us to really see other people and who they are. It's a full-time job trying to be somebody that you're not. It is a powerful thing when you can become content and grateful with who you are because it also opens up your eyes to who other people are. So justice became intersectional with me at the point at which I began to celebrate my otherness. And I began to see, brother, I began to see that all of these issues are connected. And they have the same root. Racism, fragile patriarchy, elitism, exceptionalism, manifest destiny. The root is the same. Power. It's the same root. It shows up because we are all colonized to some degree by some power base, some power over dynamic. And again, whether it's race or what I call a fragile, because I don't, I don't have an issue with patriarchy. I have an issue with fragile, unfeigned patriarchy. (laughs) And issues of way, the ways in which exceptionalism and elitism leads to colonialism, which takes away people's rights, human rights and dignity, creates classism and case systems. All of these things are intersectional all over the world, everywhere. These realities exist. So I guess I, ha- I have, from my otherness, been able to... And, and I'll tell you something funny. When we had the last real president in the United States, I'll put it yes. <laughs> I used to go to the White House quite a bit. And, you know, they would need to have certain people at the White House. So they'd have need a woman, clergy person, gay person, you know? And they could, they could send one ticket and check off like five different things when they, <laughs> they had me to come because fit, fit into a several different categories, many of which are uh, categories of otherness. But thanks be to God that the thing that some people would say could be, was meant for evil is the thing that has worked in me to bring about a life that is connected to justice. And advocacy, and I am grateful in so many ways to God for it.
0: Uh, I love that. I think Maybe to close, if, like for for those of us who are kind of at the the very beginnings of stepping into our otherness and learning how to use that on behalf of of others and, and to do justice work. Th- this is a huge question, so maybe <laughs> so maybe we can rein it in a little bit, but. Do you have any advice for I mean, for those of us who are at the very starting points of our journeys, like, what are one or two things that like have helped you keep going, to stay in this work?
1: I would encourage, again all of the hereticals prophets out there <laughs> to know again that the only thing, only difference between a prophet and a heretic is time, and every prophet begins being labeled as a heretic. Thanks be to God. I think the other thing that I would say to folks who are are out there that are called to speak truth to power, that you will have to be prepared to celebrate the importance of loneliness, being alone, because enjoying the times alone and embracing the times when you are alone. And when I say that, I don't mean Alone away from the presence of the divine. I mean, alone away from the presence of people that can support you. Because sometimes the people closest to you cannot support some of the aha moments and the revelations that you have. So you have to be able to spend your time with your understanding of the divine, often in spaces that feel alone. But those are powerful spaces to be in. Those are important spaces. Embrace those spaces. Spend time in prayer that doesn't even need words, prayer that is knowing, not prayer that is saying, but prayer that is knowing. And be empowered in those moments, in those spaces, so that when you go out from those spaces, you already have been energized. It's okay to be alone. Alone is is a powerful place to be. (laughs) Because then Jesus did it. He used to leave the disciples and go way up in the mountain and hang out. (laughs) And then from that alone place, he would come back to the disciples, and then he and the disciples would go back to the people. Learn how to find an affirmation that is not necessarily coming from the rest of the people. Find that affirmation from inside of yourself, from your soul. Then when you go out, you can go out, be among your friends, be among your enemies, and still be confident that who you are is the designer work of God. One of my friends, Danny Bell Hall, who has passed away now, she used to sing with Andre Crouch for years, But she wrote a song that says, you're a designer's original. You're one of a kind, created by a master with one purpose in mind, to be a showcase of God's glory for the whole world to see, an example of God's beauty as God shines through you and me. I want to say to all the designers originals out there, thank God for your otherness because it's the locus of your power. And thank God for your time with God and spirit that will enable you and reinforce you and empower you to go into the world to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before God.
0: It's so good. Thank you. Be sure to grab a copy of Reverend Dr. Flunder's book, Where the Edge Gathers, Wherever You Buy Books. And to find out more about her work, head over to her church's website, cityofrefugeucc.org. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at QueerologyPod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is on the air because of you. To find out how you can become an active listener and keep Queerology going, head over to patreon.com slash Matthias Roberts. A really easy way to support the show is by leaving a rating and a review. You can do that right in your podcast app or go to MatthiasRoberts.com slash review and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear on the show or just want to say hi, reach out. And until next time, y'all...